BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And welcome to the Water Cooler, everybody. I'm David Brody. We appreciate you being here. It is Tuesday, February 23rd, 2021. We begin today... With a rewind to January 6th, Democrats love this. We know all about the mayhem that ensued on that dreadful day. So today, lawmakers on Capitol Hill held a hearing demanding answers on the horrible security that day. I mean, were they prepared? Should they have been prepared? We're going to have all of that. Plus, Javier Becerra in the hot seat today. You know, hey, that's what happens when you are the HHS secretary nominee for the Biden administration and you're okay with partial birth abortion and you're also okay with suing nuns. A whole lot to unpack this afternoon. And Christianity under attack by kooky people who call themselves Christian nationalists. It's a harmful distortion of the gospel. We're going to get some answers about what this Christian nationalism is all about and why it is downright dangerous. But first to Capitol Hill, a lot of activity up there today, including the first big hearing on what exactly happened from a security perspective on January 6th. Now, everybody wants answers. Lawmakers heard from the former Senate and House Sergeant at Arms. Uh, They have not publicly spoken about the incident until today. We also heard from the D.C. acting police chief who revealed that the FBI only sent a warning about the violence the night before. It was like a generic email, apparently, no phone call or anything. And as for Republicans, Ron Johnson, Senator Ron Johnson from Wisconsin, he downplayed the role of Trump supporters. He read from an article and he was talking about how there were others there on January 6th as well. So we've got a lot of coverage of today's big hearing. All you have to do is go to justthenews.com. You'll get a complete report. But we want to get some reaction uh, to that hearing and a lot of other stuff about the future of the GOP uh, with our first guest, David Bossie. He's uh, Donald Trump's former campaign advisor in both 2016 and 2020 and also president of Citizens United. David, always great to see you, sir. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Well, look, uh, first of all, on this, let, let's talk uh, news of the day real quick. This Capitol Hill riot hearing. I mean, here's what I want to know. Did Nancy Pelosi or anyone in the Senate or House leadership know about this threat beforehand? Because she never, she never answering that question. And if so, why wasn't more done to protect the Capitol? That's what I want to know. It's such a great question. It's really the most important question is what did they know and when did they know it? I, I don't support what happened on of course. that day. I mean, no one does. And we all as conservatives feel like you have to be defensive about it. But those people who, you know, stormed the Capitol, I wish the FBI who put in a lot of great work to find the perpetrators of that, the people who attacked the cops, uh, uh, you know, the Capitol Hill police officers, you know, need to be held to account. But I wish that the double standard didn't exist. I wish the FBI has, would have I used all of the different technologies they, they did on those folks, mm-hmm. which I'm glad they did, uh, on Antifa and those other left-wing groups that burned down city after city across this cr- country over the last year. It seems that it's a double standard. It's a double standard for Nancy Pelosi when she could just call out uh, the Trump supporters and not have to answer for her own yeah. people. Uh, and so that's the that's the disturbing part. I want 
I wish we didn't have to talk about this type of stuff at all. None of this needs to be happening. You know, we're a country that uh, the greatest country in the world and, and, and we're an exceptional nation because we don't do that. Uh, we have great arguments and conversations and debates. We, we could say we're going to fight the, your agenda. We can fight uh, your public policy, but not in a physical means, right? We've been doing this for so long in this country without having to worry about the violence. Uh, and that's what really separates us from, from a lot of other nations. And, and that's what we need to get back to to be honest with you. Yeah, and 100%. And the Democrats, you know what they're going to do. They're going to milk this thing to death. I mean, 100%. Uh, I mean, they're just going to, January 6th, there's going to be a commission, then there'll be another commission, then there'll be a committee to study the commission. They want to remind, they just want to remind the American people every single day uh, for power's sake, because they feel it helps them at the ballot box in November of 2022. And I think that they're going to have enough votes uh, between now and then on their left-wing kooky policies uh, you know, whether it's AOC and her agenda uh, or Joe Biden and Kamala Harris's uh, left wing agenda. It doesn't matter. Uh, the American people are going to recognize her for what it is, and they're going to reject it in 2022. And that's why I think conservatives will win back the House. Yeah. Speaking of, let's talk about 2022 for a second as we move forward. I mean, I feel like Donald Trump, by the way, is like the Democrats' worst nightmare. I mean, he's like their Freddy Krueger. I mean, you can't you can't get rid of this guy. I mean, he, he's going to keep coming back, and, and you know him personally. Talk to me a little bit about your interactions with him uh, since uh, he left office. Uh, what's he up to and where you think this thing is going as we move to 2022, David? Well, I had the privilege of just seeing him just a few days ago. Uh, and, and he is, uh, he's in just, he looks great. I'll be honest with you. I, I told him many, several times, uh, how good he looked and how healthy he looked. Uh, that job of being president takes a toll on you physically and mentally. It's a very difficult job, uh, no matter who's in it. And so you really have to be in, 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 in really good shape. And, and the one thing the president, uh, uh, did, uh, all during the 2016 campaign and the, and the four years of his presidency, is he used to leave guys like me in the dust. Uh, his, his, he's the <laughs> energizer bunny. The guy always had energy, high energy, a lot of energy, and he had energy for other people. We, we took energy from him. And I got to tell you, seeing him the other day, uh, getting a chance to visit with him, uh, he is in such a good place. Uh, he really, I think, uh, uh, feels great. He's into the fight of the future and for the future of America. He is dedicated uh, to making sure that we try to defeat all of the bad Biden policy that's going to come down the pike to try to reverse the four years of accomplishment, uh, accomplishments that President Trump had. Uh, he's also uh, looking to help Republicans win back the House and Senate um, in 2022. And I think those are really his priorities. And I'm looking forward to his speech at CPAC uh, in, in, you know, in, in this this coming weekend, yeah. uh, because I think it's he's going to lay out. I hope that he'll lay out a lot about what that future looks like. I was going to ask you what you what you anticipate that CPAC speech to be specifically. Do you think it'll be forward looking to 2022? Uh, do you uh, what, what's your sense of where he's going with uh, the future here? Well, first of all, I think whatever it is, he's going to make some news. Uh, he's a mm -hmm. he's a he's a guy who never. And when he delivers a big speech, there's a lot to unpack and a lot to talk about. And I'm excited to be able to, to look at that. And maybe we could visit about it next week after the speech. But I think he's <laughs> going to look forward. I think he's going to look forward. I think he's obviously there's no question. 
that Donald Trump's going to revisit the last few months, and he's going to spend some time talking about how he agrees with a lot of experts that talk about uh, the use of this uh, mass mail-in ballot, uh, you know, fraud that was perpetrated on the American people, uh, you know, and I think that he'll he'll talk a little bit about that, uh, and I fully expect him to. Um, yeah. But I do think that he's going to talk about, you know, your taxes being raised and, and our national security being in jeopardy and how Middle East peace is being undone. I think he's going to point out what the American people are going to see firsthand over the course of the next weeks and months and years uh, is that the Biden administration uh, is so far left wing that they are controlled by the AOC wing of their party, yeah. uh, that that's not the mainstream of the Democrat Party. It's not the mainstream of America. And they're going to get rejected for it. And I think that the president, President Trump, uh, is going to be a big, big part of the Republican resurgence and a big part of uh, us winning back the House and Senate in 2022. So, so, David, do you get any sense at all that he is... Uh not that he's going to stop fighting. I, I think we all know he's going to continue. <laughs> never. No, I, I know never. he'll never stop fighting. But do you feel like he's still got uh, a lot for the game going forward? Like, in other words, the political, the, the political race? I mean, people want to see him run in 2024. That's the bottom line. They want, they want yeah, to I see think it. I, yeah, and, and I don't know. And I'll never speak, I, I know. Uh, you know, for him. But he, he look, this president uh, is, an, is an exceptional person. Uh, I know I've known him for a long time and, yep. and he is he is he is really, really ready to fight uh, more today than ever. Uh, I believe that he's highly motivated uh, to to do things over the next couple of years to put the Republican Party back in an incredible position to take the White House back in 2024. And I think that whether he does it or not, I think a ways off. Sure. Uh, but I think he is going to do everything in his power um, uh, over the next two years to defeat bad policy, to educate the American people as to what Biden is yeah. doing to undo his policies, but also to win back the House and Senate. David, I got about a minute left, but I got to ask you this. There's been talk about this, you know, Patriot Party and who knows, maybe he'll break off and have a separate. What, what's your what's your sense of of the machinations of all of that, if that's even a realistic thing at this point? I hope it's not. Uh, I'll be honest with you. I think that it's it would be here. Here's what would happen. We would split the Republican Party right. into two. Right. He would en he would have an enormous party from day one. But neither party, neither a, a, a new Trump party nor the Republican Party would win national elections again. It would make it very difficult in House and Senate races, because when you're splitting the Republican vote in two, um, you look at what happens when libertarians are on the, on the ballot in some places, you know, it, it, it affects uh, the Republican uh, vote total in, for the member of Congress and for the U.S. Senate there. So we can't afford to do that. Uh, we have to come together. And I think the president fully yeah. wants to and expects the Republican Party to come back together. It's OK that we have our disagreements. It's part of, yep. you know, what we are as human beings. We can agree to disagree on on occasion. But I think that we must come together to defeat this radical socialist agenda that the Democrats are putting forward. And I think that we together can defeat it. David Bossy, always great to uh, see you and hear from you. Really appreciate your take. And the next time you see the president, tell him to stick with the omega-3. Go with the fish. I'm telling you, you'll live longer. You'll live longer. All right.
Thank He'll you. appreciate it. Thanks okay. so much. Thanks, David. Appreciate it. <laughs> See you soon. All right. Uh, David Bossy. Uh, we'll be down at CPAC. So will Donald Trump on Sunday. And we will have complete coverage next week. When we come back, the governor of Georgia, Brian Kemp. By the way, Donald Trump, not a fan of him. But he'll be on the water cooler next. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Back to the water cooler, everybody. Uh, look, we heard, we know about federalism. Uh, we know about the founding fathers. We know about states' rights. But uh, what is going on across the country, like in New York and California, where it's become not states' rights but governors' rights? At least that's what it feels like. And you've got Republican Governor Brian Kemp actually trying to do the exact opposite, actually trying to do the sensible thing and say, wait a minute, this is we the people, not we the governors. And we want to talk a little bit more about what he has uh, in store down there in Georgia and bring on Governor Brian Kemp down in Georgia. Governor, always great to see you, sir. Hey, good to be back on with you, David. Thank you. Well, Governor, tell us about this Faith Protection Act, something your, your administration is behind and something that's going to really help churches and other places of worship, obviously, uh, especially as it relates to times of crisis and COVID specifically. Well, you know, my goal is for us to be a sanctuary state, if you will, for people of faith. I think this uh, pandemic has shown us that, you know, people will overreach, especially uh, people in positions of power. And that's not good, I don't think, in this republic that we have or in the state of Georgia. And certainly that really hasn't happened here. But looking around other states, it was concerning to me that we shouldn't have any governor or future governor be able to stop religious services. That's uh, embedded in our Constitution. It's a fundamental right of this country. And I was glad to offer up to give you know, that executive power that I've been given through a public health emergency to make sure we protect people of faith. Uh, our churches and, and church leaders really worked with us during the pandemic where we never had to shut down religious services. We asked them to help us be part of the solution, not part of the problem by either going online, doing outdoor services, socially distancing, limiting the number of people that could worship, but we never shut anything down. And uh, I'm proud to say that, and we don't want that to happen in the future, and that's what we're fighting for. So what would this act basically do? It would uh, curtail or restrict some of those powers that the government, a governor may have in the future to in dealing with crisis like this or crises? Yeah, it would just restrict being able to shut religious ser services down altogether. There still would be some flexibility to work, you know, depending on what the situation was. I mean, if we have another global pandemic, which I hope the good Lord will spare us from in the future. But you know, we, we did put some some guidelines in and, and some regulations so churches could open up, you know, good common sense things like social distancing, hand sanitizing, uh, cleaning practices and things of that nature. We've kind of taken the view down here, David, is, you know, we can do this. We got to work together to figure out how we do it. We got to work with our public health partners. We got to work with either the business or the religious institution or whatever entity it is to how to do that, 
but we know we can do it. We can't just stay sitting in our living room or our basement uh, for months and months at a time. That is not healthy. That's not healthy for our mental health and certainly people going to church and being able to gather or worship, whether it's in person or virtually, uh, is healthy for people. It's healthy for their mindset. And it's just really the fabric of, of who we are. And we've done that responsibly here. And we want that to be the case in the future. We don't want to allow, you know, any person, including myself, to be able to weigh in that now or in the future like we saw in, in other states. And so that's why we're taking this action. Well, it's interesting you mentioned other states because I was going to say in, in New York, for example, the, the legislature, and these are Democrats, <laughs> they're rethinking uh, some of these the, this emergency power that they've given to governors like Andrew Cuomo in New York. Uh, what, what's the balancing act here? Because uh, I would think there's a balancing act, but at the same time, there are some governors, and it seems to be coming from Democrat states that have taken many will say advantage of the crisis. Well, listen, I, I completely agree with what some of these legislatures are doing as a former legislator myself. I mean, you need checks and balances in government. If you have a governor that overreaches or, uh, you know, is abusing their power, especially in a public health state of emergency, but really in any other state of emergency uh, where you've got those unusual powers, uh, of not going through the legislative process to create the law to dictate what the actions of the executive branch are, then the legislature should come together to consider, you know, whether they want to reform or pull back or override power. Thankfully, we haven't had that in this state. In fact, I've used these powers to keep locals from overreaching and wanting to shut our economy back down when our state uh, it, you know, public health emergency said that the economy could be open. And so, you know, that's something that it's hard to do and it should be that way, but it can be done when governors overreach. And I think that's what you're seeing in other states now. You're getting broad bipartisan support to take these actions. Yeah, for sure. Hey, before we let you go, a quick question as it relates to kind of an overall umbrella question about election fraud. I think there's some concern about how justice gets done by the states. Uh, for example, if they want to sue, sometimes they, states might want to, they're concerned about election fraud, they'll try to sue before the election, but the courts are saying it's too soon, right, because the election hasn't happened. And then if they do it after the election, courts are saying, well, you, <laughs> you should have brought it up earlier. And it's, it's after the fact. So, so what do states do in situations like that and make sure justice is served? It's a tough situation here. It is. I think the two things for me, as somebody that was Secretary of State, you know, I fought to sue, sue the Obama Justice Department so that we have a citizenship check before you could register to vote in Georgia. And I worked really hard to make it easy to vote, but hard to cheat here in Georgia and have secure elections. You know, we have to continue to fight for secure elections. A lot of people's confidence has wavered in that. So I think it's important, number one, to have good laws and regulations during the election to make it easy to vote and hard to cheat. And then after the election, uh, people really need to know what the process is. And it does involve a courtroom and you have the burden of proof of, of proving that fraud. So it's important for you know, political parties and people on the ground to understand that or state parties to watch that process, to document it so that if it does happen, you can actually prove it in a court of law and have some remedy uh, from you know, either Superior Court judge or a, or a federal judge after the election. Uh, thankfully, over the years, we've done a lot of good things in Georgia to help have secure elections. But I think we saw this year with the 
number of absentee ballots by mail that we had. We need mm -hmm. to look at that. I, for one, support a photo ID requirement on those absentee ballots by mail to secure the vote. Yeah. Governor Brian Kemp, always great to see you. Thanks so much and uh, great work down there in Georgia as it relates to uh, COVID-19 and, wh and what's going on down there. I appreciate you. Thanks, David. All right. Governor Brian Kemp down there in Georgia. We'll have him back on the show soon. Uh, coming up, Kristen Day. She's a pro-life Democrat. I know it's like an endangered species out there, but we have him on the show. She's the executive director of Democrats for Life. She's not happy with Javier Becerra, the HHS nominee for the Biden administration up on Capitol Hill today. We'll talk about it next. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome back to the Water Cooler, everybody. Uh, Javier Becerra, he has been nominated to be the new Health and Human Services Administration official. And well, folks, um, not going too well. Uh, we'll see if he gets through. Uh, there he is. He's the former attorney general in California, which kind of makes you wonder why in the world is he being nominated for HHS secretary, but that's a whole nother matter. Or is it? Because a lot of what he did as attorney general could potentially and is actually coming back to haunt him in his confirmation hearing, which got underway today in the Senate. So let's bring in uh, Kristen Day, executive director of Democrats for Life of America. Kristen, uh, always great to see you. Oh, thanks for having me on today. Well, look, uh, Democrats for Life. So wait, let me get this straight. You're a Democrat and Javier Becerra is a Democrat. But when it comes to the life issue, boy, you and your organization just don't line up at all with what he's uh, preaching and putting out there. Explain some of the concerns that you have about Becerra. Sure. And, you know, going back to the original question of why was he appointed in the first place, are nominated is um, he was very involved in the passage of Obamacare, which Democrats for Life was the only pro-life organization that did support Obamacare. So, you know, we can understand why uh, Joe Biden would want to appoint him there to focus on, you know, expanding access to health care for people. Uh, but unfortunately, you know, his, his strong um, ties to the abortion lobby and everything that he's done as attorney general in California really disqualifies him in my opinion, from leading an organization that will have such an impact on you know, abortion policy and abortion funding. He's very extreme on the issue, you know, going after the nuns, you know, going after journalists who, who are exposing uh, the fact that abortion providers are selling baby body parts and harvesting um, body parts from uh, babies. So, you know, he just, his extreme position is just, is, is not, does, is not a good fit for HHS with which should focus on saving lives. Yeah, we'll get to the nuns, <laughs> the nuns in a moment. Yeah. I mean, never a good sign when you're suing nuns. I mean, that that's not good for the resume, uh, for sure. No. Uh, all right, but but let's get to the uh, the life issue, or in Javier Becerra's case, the partial birth abortion issue. Mitt Romney uh, questioned him about that today uh, because let's be honest, Javier Becerra is okay with it. Uh, he, he's not against it, uh, and which is a it's not a mainstream position at all. And here's some of that exchange. Let's take a look as a thought. Um, there's a division in our country with regards to the issue of abortion, of course, as you know, and mainstream Republicans, mainstream Republicans, or D Democrats disagree. But most people agree 
that partial birth abortion uh, uh, is awful. Uh, you voted against a ban on partial birth abortion. Why? So, Senator, here, um, I, I understand that people have different deeply held beliefs on, on this issue, and, and I respect that. Uh, I have worked, as I've mentioned, for decades trying to protect the health of men and women, young and old. Uh, and as Attorney General, my job has been uh, to follow the law and make sure others are following the law. And I'm also sitting in front of a high-risk OBGYN who for several decades had the work of protecting the health of women and a, a future baby. And so I, I will tell you that when I come to these issues, I understand that we may not always agree uh, on where to go, but I think we can find some common ground on these issues because everyone wants to make sure that if you have an opportunity, you're going to live a, a healthy life. And I will tell you that I, I hope to be able to work with you and others to reach that common ground on so many different issues. I think we can reach common ground on many issues, but on partial birth abortion, it sounds like we, we're not going to reach uh, common ground there. Uh, let, let <laughs> we're not going to reach common ground there. Well, I mean, Kristen, can I just be straight with you here? That, that was such a Washington, D.C. answer. I mean, come on. Right. And I think that's one of the main reasons why he should not be the HHS secretary. When you can't even say that it is wrong to, you know, the partial birth abortion procedure is just horrific. And I right. don't even care to explain it right now. But, you know, when you support that and you can't come out and say that it's wrong, and at the same time say that you want to provide an opportunity for people to live, um, I think he excludes anybody before birth. And that is a huge problem for pro-life Democrats, which is why we came out in opposition of him, to him, and we we're encouraging both Senator Casey and Senator Manchin to oppose his nomination. Well, it's funny you mentioned them because I was just about to ask you, what's your sense? Give us kind of like uh, as much as you can some of the backstory on Casey and Manchin. I mean, this is where people are looking to to see if one of them, just one, will say no because one will 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 be the end of uh, Becerra's nomination. Right. So we also need Collins and Murkowski. So we need those four are sort of the sort of the the um, you know we could get Manchin and Casey, and if Murkowski and Collins don't vote for 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 against him, uh, and then you know it goes to the vice president. So it's a very precarious situation right now, and really we're really working hard to try to convince both Senator Casey and Manchin that they should not vote for um, for Javier Becerra. Any sense it's, it's of whether or not. You're yeah, any sense if you're making any progress? I mean, do you feel like there's some hope there or, or, or it's going to be very, very, very hard? I think it's going to be very hard. Uh, we'll find out more today. I, Senator Casey is in the hearings right now listening to the testimony and he'll ask questions. Uh, so we're hoping that we that he finds it in his heart to, to really do the right thing and represent the views of millions of Americans who don't want to see an HH secretary whose main mission is to expand abortion. And, you know, one of the one of the most terrible things he did, not one of the most, but when he tried to shut down pregnancy centers, which actually provide support and care and diapers and clothing to women who in, in crisis and unplanned pregnancies. And he wanted to shut them down by putting all these regulations in the fact where they had to advertise for abortion clinics in 19 different languages. Um, and right. fortunately, that was overturned. Right, but, because he was know, putting he, signs up, right? I mean, they, he, they yeah. wanted signs up in front of these pregnancy clinics. Right, to say, you know, where they could go get abortions. 
And, uh, you know, it just, his, his sort of obsession with really promoting this abortion agenda is just so concerning to have him leading the Health and Human Services Department. Yeah, Kristen, uh, I appreciate you being here, and I think you, you summed it up uh, well when you said obsession. I mean, I think that's exactly the word. It's, it's not even just like he's uh, pro-choice. I mean, he, he's a guy that uh, it it's just seems like a mission for him in a way. So, uh, yeah. Kristen, I, I, I appreciate your time. Thanks, thanks for being here. Sure. Thank you so much. All right. Kristen Day, uh, i tell you what, talk about fighting the good fight. She's fighting the good fight every day. And that, look, that, that, that's not what we, who we just saw there. Kristen Day uh, supports many of the Democrat positions on many other issues. But when it comes to life, no, she's taking a stand. And, you know, good, good for her. Uh, that is some tough sledding for sure politically. All right. When we come back, uh, Tim Heavy, executive director of the Faith and Freedom Coalition on Christian nationalism. Danger. Iceberg right ahead. Welcome back to the Water Cooler. Is that the name of the show? Just double checking. Uh, Christian nationalism. Okay, so let me just be very clear, right? You've got Christianity, right? A personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That's here. And then Christian nationalism, that's way over there. Like, way over, like across from me in the studio. Out of control, put a big old border wall, bring Trump in and put the border wall between Christian nationalism and Christianity. They have nothing, why am I talking like this? They have nothing to do with one another. Zero. But don't take it from me. Let's talk to Tim Head, Executive Director of the Faith and Freedom Coalition, uh, back on the show, who has written about this. Tim, always great to see you, sir. Well, thank you so much for having me, and thanks for talking about this. I think this is a really important topic for us to get some clarity on. Well, 100 percent. And Tim, just to give our viewers a sense of what we mean by Christian nationalism, we have no better example than the crazy wackos that stormed into the Capitol on January 6th and actually took over the Senate uh, chamber there for a moment. And then they said that prayer, uh, a prayer, in, and I hate to even say in Jesus' name because it wasn't Jesus that they were praying to, that's for sure. But anyhow, this, this is hard to watch as a Christian, but I want to play it so that we have a sense of what... Uh, we're talking about here. Here it is. Jesus Christ, we invoke your name. Amen. Amen. Let's all say a prayer. They're saying, Jesus Christ, let's invoke your name. Amen. Tim, explain to our audience the difference. And, and it's more than a difference. It's something totally different. That's right. Well, it's a counterfeit is what it is. Counterfeit. Uh, it's uh, it's it's. Uh, it's an attempt to uh, to try to kind of emulate um, uh, true patriotism, uh, patriotism, but uh, but in reality, you know, we're dealing with a, a situation where um, extreme personalities and stre extreme ideologies will will come in and say that uh, that nationalism uh, conflate nationalism and patriotism. Patriotism is simply a healthy. Uh, appreciation for your country and for your nation. Okay, uh, nationalism uh, kind of feigns that, but uh, but uh, pulls in these notions of superiority and north, normally like ethnic or uh, you know occasionally maybe religious superiority, which which we know is counter uh, to everything that Scripture teaches. We know that God uh, is no respecter of persons. We know that uh, that Jesus didn't come just to the to the Jews. He also came to the Gentiles. You know that that God is a God of love and a God, and, and heaven is not an exclusive place from an ethnic perspective. It's it's a matter of faith, and do we place our our, our own faith in the person of Jesus Christ? And so, um, so when we're talking about this notion of nationalism, uh, it really is true, truly a distortion 
over of 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 what a what should be a healthy pride. So I, I would say not only American Christians should be proud to be Americans, but but Australian Christians should be proud to be Australians, and yeah. Honduran Christians should be proud to be Hondurans. No, for sure. And and you wrote about this in a Washington Examiner op-ed. I want to put that up and read a little bit from it. You say this: the term Christian nationalism is really just a scare label meant to demonize conservative Christian patriots. Real Christian patriotism has nothing to do with the political violence we saw on Capitol Hill or with any attempt to make Christianity the law of the land in America. For Christian patriots, America is a blessing. But Christian patriots know that America isn't a replacement for the church and should never be mistaken for a vehicle of salvation. By the way, let me just say a woman, a man, and not a woman, but a, <laughs> but a, a man uh, to that. But, but Tim, you know, some people get confused because we hear a lot from Christians. We're talking about true, born-again, evangelical Christians who say this is a Christian nation. It was found on Judeo-Christian principles. But that is very different from this extreme. It's not even extreme. It's something totally different than Christian nationalism. And it's important to make the distinction there. Uh, that's that's right. And, uh, and you know, look, I mean, not, not only does this have kind of political or public policy uh, implications, but it really has implications for uh, for the, the church ecumenical and for local churches as well. And so, you know, church you know, local churches should be welcoming places to any any and all uh, ethnicities, any and all, um, uh, you know, kind of creeds and, 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 and uh, colors, so to speak, that, that this is. Um, but and when when this notion of nationalism, which again has a very heavy uh, ethnic uh, under under undercurrent or undertone to it, um, whenever that starts to infiltrate uh, our local churches or our body politic, uh, we know that we've uh, that, that that things have veered off the off the rail. And so when you see a prayer like we just uh, you know, I almost kind of put that in air quotes. A prayer like you just uh, showed uh, happening in the House of Representatives, uh, or um, you know, a, a few months, a few weeks ago. Yeah. Um, that is that is a uh, it is truly a counterfeit, and uh, and and we also know that God is a God of order, not a God of disorder, and a, or a God of confusion or chaos. And so, yeah. um, so th we, we really need to need to be able to make clear distinctions on this. Tim, as we wrap up here, I, I want to get your take on. Um, look, there are a lot of church-going uh, members, uh, true born-again evangelical Christians who do believe the election was stolen. They they, they do believe uh, that you know, they're frustrated at what happened uh, in, in 2020. And uh, I don't want to get into QAnon and all that, but there, there are some born-again Christians who, who believe uh, a lot of what happened was wrong in 2020. And that is meshed in, unfortunately, with some of that crazy Christian nationalism as well. And so I, the media has lumped everyone together. And I think that, that that's kind of the concern that I have personally, that, you know, if you say the election was stolen and you go to church and you're a Christian nationalist. Well, that's right. And I mean, let's really when we're talking about, you know, this kind of uh, uh, terminology of Christian nationalism that's really been being imposed on on American believers uh, by uh, by a, a, a media machine uh, that's really just trying to back Christians into a corner and, and essentially say, uh, you know, you sit at the at the at the small table over there and, and uh, you know, we'll ask you, we'll tell you what your opinion is when we're ready for it. Right. And, uh, and and while it's important to make these distinctions, distinctions between being uh, a, a legitimate, proud uh, American patriot and being a nationalist, we also have to not allow um, any uh, sort of rhetorical gamesmanship by the left to say, you know what, just stay out of politics because we don't need you anyway. 
And, and so we, you know, at the Faith and Freedom Coalition and a number of other organizations, uh, I mean, we, our, our, our role and our, our uh, motto is to give Christians a voice in government. And that's mm -hmm. uh, exactly what we will be doing and have been doing, uh, is that we will stand for biblical truth and we will stand for people who, are, who ascribe to biblical truth in our, in our yeah. public discourse and our body politic. Tim Head, I really appreciate the level-headed, no pun intended. Well, maybe it was a pen, pun intended, a level-headed discussion here. Thank, thank you, I'll, sir. I'll take it. I'll take it. <laughs> thank you, David. It. Probably not the first time you've heard that, Tim. All right. Thanks, Won't be Tim. The last. <laughs> it won't be the last. All right. Uh, by the way, uh, let, let me just say, uh, this is all about silencing uh, Christians in this country. There's not, not even doubt about it. You know, just stay over there, like you said, at the little kitty table, and we don't want to hear from you. All right, we're back in a moment with the last and welcome back to the water cooler everybody time for i love this segment the last sip because i get to talk <laughs> no i get to talk the whole hour actually uh all right so uh I tell you what let's not uh, have me talk any longer let's go to our 1974 cheesy announcer we love him we don't know his name <laughs> we kind of do know his name but we don't know his name he does the poll of the day The water cooler poll of the day. This is my new ringtone, by the way, FYI. If you ever call me, it'll be like, poll the day, poll the day, poll the day. All right, let's go to the poll of the day. Which poses a greater danger to the lives and safety of African Americans? Violent crime or police-involved shootings? Well, I mean, it's pretty, pretty apparent. Violent crime, 65%, overwhelmingly. 65% police involved shootings at 22% and 13% not sure. Look, I got to talk to the not sure crowd. Every time we do poll of the day, 13% not sure, 22% not sure, 39% not sure. Hey, how about you be sure? Just pick one. Whatever. What, they want more time? Fine, take more time. All right, speaking about uh, polls, we have another poll. Donald Trump is going to like this. Is he, rolling, is he watching Madison? Is he, is he watching our show? Uh, apparently, Trump is watching our show. We probably made that up, but that's all right. Hopefully, he is, because look at this poll from YouGov, YouGov.com or something like that. Did you know that in 2018, Republicans called Ronald Reagan the best president in United States history? Well, guess what, folks? It's not 2018. It's 2021. And guess who your new winner is? That's right, Donald Trump. 36% of Republicans say Donald Trump is their favorite president of all time. Second, the Gipper. Ronald Reagan dropping, that's right, dropping into the number two slot at 18%. Abraham Lincoln, we like to call him H.A., that's Honest Abe, at 13%. Donald Trump would like that, that he's better than Lincoln, except for slavery. No, Lincoln did great on slavery. And then number four, George Washington, 11%. <laughs> Trump, George Washington, that's Kind of funny. All right, JFK, wait a minute, hold on. That doesn't even make any sense. He's not a Republican. And Franklin Delano Roosevelt at 3%. Why are those Democrats on that poll? <laughs> Donald Trump, the most popular Republican president in history. Should we rewind the tape? Someone send this to Trump. Donald Trump, the most popular Republican president in history. As he would say, and you know he would do this, enjoy. And welcome back to the water cooler, everybody. It's the end of the show, and this is the best. This is the best part of the show. Because, oh, well, I am I'm talking sorry, about no, you. Keep going. 
Were you were you going to say something else? Please, I know I cut you off. Please, right. is there something else? No, no, no. You knew I was going to say okay. you're the best part of this show. Thank you. I've been known to be a chronic liar, FYI. Oof. I'm well, just saying. All right. But no, no, you really you are the best part of the show. Uh, Thank you. Because you've always come to mm. the table, literally, with news. That's true. You've got some news today. And I'm not empty-handed today. So what do you got? Here's what we're talking about. We know we've got this gigantic stimulus package yeah. that currently Congress is trying to figure out. The Senate parliamentarian is looking into whether or not they can jam in a $15 minimum wage mandate that can be done through budget reconciliation. Right. It's unclear. Democrats and Republicans are obviously on very different sides of this issue, as in fact are moderate uh, Democrats mm -hmm. who think that a federal minimum mandated minimum wage of $15 is, you know, going to run a number of small businesses out of business, which mm -hmm. is not it's not a gut instinct. It's something that we've heard from the CBO. It's something that small businesses have told us time and time again. We can't afford to pay our workers, this, especially during a pandemic right, year. Like look at the economic models. Truly, when we've been shuttered. Yeah. So now we have progressive representative Ro Khanna of mm -hmm. California. Mm -hmm. um, and he went on CNN this past weekend to talk a little bit about this issue. Uh, Abby Phillip was asking him what he thought about the $15 minimum wage mm -hmm. piece of this legislation. And what she said was, you know, the perfectly reasonable question of, we understand why you think that this is a living wage and why people deserve a living wage, but what are you saying to these businesses that aren't Amazon, that aren't Google, that aren't these massive corporations that can and maybe should be paying their workers a little bit better? Um, but what about these small businesses, yeah. restaurants, mom and pop shops that cannot by any measure afford to pay their workers that? What he said? And what he said, especially coming from a state like California where mm -hmm. businesses have really been shuttered for a long time because of yeah. COVID restrictions, he said, we don't want those businesses. If you can't afford to be paying your workers $15 an hour minimum wage, that's not a business that should be in business. That is not an economic model that we feel is something that we need to cater to. Wow, that's radical. It's radical. That's radical. It's radical, yeah. especially when you have a lot of, you know, more um, centrist mm -hmm. Democrats saying, let's think about it case by case. Let's think about this. Maybe the California minimum wage can be different than the West yeah. Virginia minimum wage because they are very different places. Very interesting. All right, he's from he's a Bernie Sanders guy. Yes, he is. Okay, we'll talk about that another time. All right, thanks, Sophie. Thank you. Best part of the show. <laughs> I appreciate it. All right, Jordan Sekulow on the show tomorrow. Donna Rice Hughes will be here to talk about the Justice Department. Rick Green and Liz Harrington, what a show. Thank you.